A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to Seniors in Tech, a mini-series where we bust stereotypes by talking to seniors who either worked in the tech industry at the beginning of the digital era or are currently tech-fluent in their everyday lives. I'm Dr. Nikki Ackermans, and this week we are talking to Michael Musial, who worked in the high-tech industry since the late 70s and has even had some of his tech get into space. Can you go ahead and just introduce yourself and give us your senior cred and your tech cred? <laughs> Well, I don't know what counts as cred, but uh, my name's Michael Musial. I uh, worked my way up through the ranks. Although I've got an uh, engineering background in education, I do not have a degree. So I want to put that disclaimer out there right now. I uh, started out as an electronics tech in several companies and worked my way up uh, into design uh, over the years. And not having the degree has been uh, a little bit of a limiting factor, but I have come to the conclusion if a company's not going to respect my experience, then the degree doesn't mean anything to me as far as whether they're going to accept me or not. Yeah, because the experience is kind of the important part in the end. Yep, yep. So uh, I've had a couple of flat-out turndowns over the year, uh, over the years, but uh, at the same time, uh, I've interviewed with Apple a couple of times. Uh, the the deciding factor for not going is they, uh, the people I talked to wanted me to relocate, and I really like where I live. So mm. I prefer to be living up here next to Lake Superior and uh, a little different style of life up here. Yeah, it sounds beautiful already from what I've heard from you. So you started out in the late 70s from what I grasp, and what Correct. made you want to go into tech at the time? Um, well, it goes back before that. I had sent you uh, a note that I actually was starting to build stuff in electronics in third grade. Mm. Uh, I wanted a metal detector and uh, <laughs> couldn't afford one on my paper out money. So I decided I was going to build one. And, sure, uh, as one does. <laughs> yeah, well, a lot of geeks out there want to understand that. So uh, eventually got uh, into what I needed to, uh, to build my first metal detector and got into ham radio mm. and uh in ham radio, there's a uh, term called an Elmer, and that's a mentor. They kind of guide you through studying. Okay. And he's he was a senior engineer that I have a great deal of respect for. He has since passed. Um, and he did his best when he found out I kind of liked his engineering thing and wanted to become an engineer. He did everything he could to dissuade me from being one. <laughs> and when I still insisted on becoming an engineer, he said, well, okay, if uh, you're going to do it, you're going to learn how to do it right. So good, good that's, man. it started back in eighth grade uh, of uh, middle school there and uh, kind of never looked back. You made it all the way up to R&D manager for U.S. Robotics. 
how was the path to get there? If you didn't go get your degree, I guess you just tested a few different companies, picking up things that you liked, and then you went to robotics. Um, yeah. Big generalization, I guess, <laughs> of a lot of years of your life, I'm sure. Yeah, there's a lot happened in between. You know, the magic happened between point A and point B. But uh, before U.S. Robotics, I had been with a company called Jerome Teleconferencing and Teleconferencing Technologies for a number of years. And although my background is mostly analog and RF, uh, I got involved in digital electronics and programming in the early 80s. So it gave wow, me an understanding of both, yeah, both sides of the equation. So I not only understood the uh, the digital side of what needed to get done, but I understood uh, the, the had a good understanding of that black magic known as analog. Yeah, that helps. Did you so, also have some of the? I guess if you started out from home, did you also have some of the digital like tech at home as well, or was it more work? Um, well, I started out building you know radio equipment and uh, rebuilding old stuff in World War II and making an amateur radio gear out of it. But uh, in the late 70s, I bought this kit and built a, what was called a Cosmac Elf 2, one of the first personal computers, if you want to call it that. You, wow, you did a really first computer build. <laughs> yep, yep. That's and that kind of got me hooked. Is like I, I hooked all these parts up together and they, they worked the first time. That's unheard of. Wow. <laughs> yeah. But uh, with, with U.S. Robotics, uh, I had been in telecom for a number of years and got really involved in digital signal processing and uh, um, echo cancellation because we were doing uh, full duplex speaker phones. And uh, this is before the days of Polycom and, and the, the names that you recognize today mm -hmm. um, and audio conference bridges. So I was designing that and working with various telecom uh, companies around the U.S. and in Europe. And uh, the company I worked for uh, was purchased by another company, and they relocated to the East Coast, and I didn't want to move. Yeah. So a good friend of mine, going back to the uh, the seniors in tech mode, by the way, I'm just shy of 62, so there's a lot older ones out there than me. Oh, yeah. And I don't I don't think I'm that old, but uh, <laughs> yeah, anyhow, I, when I start talking about modems and people's eyes glaze over, glaze over it's <laughs> yeah. like, okay, maybe... <laughs> But uh, one of my friends in tech had uh, sold uh, a gentleman by the name of Michael Seedman. And if you look him up, he was senior vice president of U.S. Robotics at the time. But oh. at, at one time in, in life, uh, my friend had sold Michael Seedman a, a Radio Shack Tandy TRS-80 computer out of his garage. <laughs> and okay. uh, he sent Michael Seedman uh, an email out of the blue saying, hey, I've got a friend that's got uh, TIDSB uh, uh, experience and I've known him for a long time. And I think you're looking for engineers. So. Uh, Michael Seedman hired me uh, sight unseen. That's a great friend. <laughs> yep. And I get stuck right in R&D. Now, I, I wasn't, I was a R&D manager. There are a lot of R&D people at uh, yeah, U.S. Sure. Robotics, but I was in the personal communications division. I uh, was there when they made the transition from uh, the 32K Sportster up to 56K modems. Still slow by today's standards, <laughs> but uh, it was a good experience. Yeah. And uh are there some R&D moments that stand out for you at that, at that specific company? Probably the biggest one is uh, the group I was in uh, came up with one of, again, everything's just a, everybody built in everybody else's work. Of course. But uh, uh, our group had a, a patent of uh, internet telephony, which is oh. partially the predecessor to what you would consider Wi-Fi calling today. Yeah. But, so it was a whole process of, okay, uh, digitizing audio and putting it over the internet. There's no real magic there other than, other than understanding what it takes to do it. But it was the whole process of uh, 
determining the the service systems and everything else to be able to uh, coordinate uh, phone numbers to IP addresses and how to coordinate all this on the internet. And uh, that patent was filed, I think, initially in 96, 97, something like that. It took a while for it to go through the system. Okay. That's probably the the biggest thing I, I, I took away from U.S. Robotics is I still have my name on that patent, along with the rest of the members on the team. That's pretty cool. I guess, uh, wow, that's kind of a cool thing to have that you could say that you did that. It's okay. fun. It's fun. I've been real fortunate. And the one thing that was unique about U.S. Robotics is when an engineer came up with an idea that was uh, uh, worthwhile, they actually uh, gave you some pretty good bonuses for it. A lot of companies, you get a mm-hmm. plaque with your name on it and maybe a check for a dollar yeah. uh, that you had a patent. And uh, that's one area I've been real fortunate in. Uh, I've got 13 patents uh, over my career. Uh, most of them, I think, have expired as far as protected All right. at this point, but uh, still. Wow, that's pretty impressive. We've got the list out there. Anything else that uh, people would recognize? Um, the simplest one I've got out there uh, and probably made the most royalties of because it was a family-owned company. And when this patent came out, they rewarded everybody very well. Nice. Uh, it's called a signal mirror patent. And if you see turn signals in the outside rear of your mirror, yeah. uh, that's how I actually was able to afford to move to where I live now. Oh, cool. I'm going to have to think about that now every time I'm driving. <laughs> I still think about it when I see it on the on the road. It's like, hey, cool! I know what that's that is. <laughs> that's amazing. Okay, so patent making actually does a reward sometimes, not all the yeah, time. Yeah, it, it's for most companies, it's an excuse to be able to sue each other. And I have been through many <laughs> depositions as well, and that's the part that's not fun with patents. Yeah, I I bet. So yeah, you you wrote in in your background that you had these audio teleconferencing devices, the automotive electronics. I guess that's part of the turning signal. Thing, yep. Some of it. Yep. And the other one in the automotive electronics was a, it's called a night vision patent, but it's actually all weather. Uh, it okay. sees through snow, smoke, rain, and, and, uh, and darkness. And uh, that one, I don't know if it's ever been implemented by the company after I left it, but uh, it wound up uh, getting me into some rather interesting design situations because uh, we wound up working with the uh, Russian military with the, uh, invitation of the Kremlin. So I actually worked in Moscow over two periods of time uh, at the invitation of the Kremlin, who what sponsored year my visa. Was this? Um, let's see here. That would have been 2003 and okay. 2006. Okay. That, it's better that it's more recent, I guess, because if not, things start to get a little bit tense. Was it kind of tense to go it, work for Russia? No, no. I mean, it was, it was, it was a different experience for me, but mm. uh, it was at the invitation of the Kremlin and with the approval of the State Department. I mean, there are a lot of okay. uh, I's, the dot, and T's to cross. And Absolutely. that wasn't actually my first experience with Russia. In the early 90s, I was involved with a company called American Innovation Computers. And if you looked it up today, other companies have taken on that name. But uh, we were the, I think at the time, the only U.S. company authorized to sell high-tech computers to Russia. And they were used for the uh, Russian space program. So you made stuff that's been into space? Made stuff that helped put things up in space. And yes, uh, we actually did the the physical testing uh, for some gear that went up in Mir that was used for the uh, inventory system up there. And uh, one of the other companies I worked with outside, out in uh, California by the name of Vatum had a product called the Clio 
1000 and the Clio 1050, and it was also uh, marketed as the Sharp Mobileon tripod. And uh, a Linux version of that device made it up on the ISS. And I've got a picture What does that of the, exactly do? It's uh, Think of it as a predecessor to an iPad, except this was back in the okay. late 90s. Uh, it had a oh, touchscreen. Wow. Uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the group that uh, Paragraph. Paragraph had joined Vatum, and they were doing handwriting recognition. Oh, so wow. this uh, this device, you could actually physically just write in longhand on it, would transcribe your uh, your badly, but it would transcribe what you were <laughs> writing. And then it had a flip out full QWERTY keyboard underneath. Well, that's pretty uh, cutting edge for the time, actually. Yeah, complete with Wi-Fi and, uh, and a modem. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it was an interesting device. And again, it was used up on the ISS, I believe, mostly for inventory control and such. But oh, I've got a picture cool. of the, uh, the flight commander holding it. Uh, and the picture... <laughs> That was to put this in a time frame. The picture of the flight commander holding that uh, Clio uh, was uh, three days before 9 11. Okay. I looked at the timestamp on that. I'm like, wow, things changed just a few days after that picture was sent. Yeah, weird how different events overlap like that. So, okay, Russia. So you've lived in a bunch of places and you finally settled where you are now because it seems to be beautiful and amazing. And you set up the internet connection for where you live, like the whole island where you live. Is that correct? This part of it. Now, it's, it's known as the Keweenaw Peninsula, but there's one bridge on and off. So on, in my book, that's called an island. An and, island yeah. <laughs> and, and, and in old maps, you'll actually see it called Copper Island. It's okay. about 50 miles from end to end. It's pretty good size. Uh, so it's an hour drive down to the bridge from here. And uh, again, not me single-handedly, but a group of us. But uh, when I was first coming up here, for work purposes, I, I've been coming up here since 1974, mm. but uh, with the intent of uh, when we bought the house and living up here, and at the time I was still with uh, U.S. Robotics, uh, we only had dial up 22K. And uh, to say that was painful was an understatement. <laughs> I can imagine. So I joined up with a group called Pasty, and uh, we started making microwave links because at the time there wasn't even any fiber on the island at all. Mm. And we were doing uh, hilltop to hilltop microwave links to bring internet up to the county. And initially, the first link to the county was only 10 megabit okay. for the entire county. Not great. <laughs> yeah. Now, now, I mean, it's still by city standards, so-so. But uh, we're offering 25 meg down, 5 meg up for people in log cabins in the woods now. So it's... Uh, it's quite usable, actually. Man, you have really like fortunate neighbors <laughs> who probably benefit from your need for high-speed internet. Yeah, there's a 300 meg dish uh, about 50 feet to my left up on a tower right now in my office. Here. And that's why your connection is so great. <laughs> that's my connection. And it also supplies uh, the state park up here and many oh, of the neighbors around me. I, I'm also the rural paramedic up here. Uh, it's a very right. small area. But when I'm not uh, running down the road in the ambulance, I'm... Uh, climbing up hills, working on microwave links that are either solar or wind powered. And uh, I get to do that year round. So when I'm not climbing up in the summer, I'm snowshoeing up in the winter. It keeps oh, me in good shape. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine you're really like the all around helper guy for, for your community. It actually seems like. Well, again, that's everybody here. Right. Um, right. I could see how that would work. As I said, in the background, this particular community is 90 people year round during the summer. It's a major summer uh, vacation destination. Mm. But we still have a one-room schoolhouse. It's still in operation, has been since the 1800s. So wow. there's, a, there's a long, old history in this town. And everybody wow. has to wear multiple hats to make it work. 
Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic is your one-stop shop for enterprise AI. With models at every point on the price-performance curve, you no longer have to make trade-offs between intelligence, speed, and cost. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between skills and speed, and Haiku is the fastest and lowest cost model on the market, perfectly designed for high-volume, high-speed use cases. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to keep them at the frontier. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude today. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Stripe tap-to-pay on iPhone came along and changed everything. With Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. No more juggling different methods. Just a simple tap on my iPhone and transactions are complete. What's truly remarkable is how Stripe caters to all my customers' preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Stripe ensures a smooth checkout experience every time. Setting up Stripe was a breeze, taking just minutes to get up and running. From local markets to global retailers, Stripe helped me expand my reach and grow my business with ease. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. Sounds like a cool place to live. So you're still, aside being a paramedic and maintaining the internet and all of that, you're also still developing software and hardware? Yes, I am. Um, in between contracts right now, but they tend to, you know, a, a big project tends to come up. I'll spend a year or two with it with a company. Uh, that's kind of the way startups go. And yeah. uh, then I'll kind of settle back in. I'm, I've, I'm reaching the point now where I'm semi-retired, but I'm never going to step up. Uh, it's hard. I'd show you, it's this, this room is an absolute mess right now, but uh, considering I'm, I am uh, uh, 230 miles from the nearest interstate right now, I have full surface mount capability in the bench next to me. So I do hardware, uh, prototyping here, uh, write the software to support it, and do a lot of testing locally here. And what kind of hardware, just in general? Um, The last stuff I did was ARM-based with uh, a 9-axis orientation on it for a product called Zensor. And um, that was a device a little bigger than a half dollar and a quarter-inch thick that you would mount on your mountain bike or your surfboard or kiteboard or whatever sport you're in. And even just, uh, I used to put on my hat when I was running mm-hmm. and it would record for six hours and it had okay. a very sensitive, uh, very accurate GPS on it, uh, complete with Bluetooth. And, uh, when you got back, it would download to your computer and it would give you a full 3d, uh, recording of what you just did. So it would cool. show you the trails you were on, how high you jumped on jumps, what kind of G forces you had on them. Awesome. And it was actually used in another space application, but I think there's uh it wasn't designed for it, but it was a <laughs> high G device. And I think there's an NDA there that prevents me from saying who used it, but uh, it's kind of cool to see that it's still. That is cool. That's really cool. And I wonder, so you're still obviously doing all of this very, and very, very high tech. Like this is like high, high tech. What, mm. um, 
Well, okay. For me, <laughs> there's always somebody more high tech. How does it feel to be so considered a senior in tech? And mo some people might go ahead and assume you don't even know how to work an iPhone. And so what is, what is that like? Well, most of the people up here, other than uh, some guys call me the, and some families actually say, Hey, the cable guy's here. <laughs> so a lot of the residents of town know my background, but in general, a lot of people have no idea mm. what I did before I came here. Although there was, there was one other paramedic when I first started with the service up here, and I've been with the service going on 14 years, who actually took the time to go on the internet and just did a Google search on me. And he showed up at the, uh, the station house one night. And he said, what the heck are you doing here? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I said, it's all quality of life. Uh, uh, yeah. I've had numerous opportunities to relocate out to the West Coast. Uh, my wife is a horse trainer, by the way. Cool. And we had an Arabian horse farm in... Um, eastern side of uh, Wisconsin before we moved up here. Mm. And uh, one of the startups I was working with out in the West Coast at one point uh, flew my wife out and my then my one-year-old oldest son. And uh, they actually offered to buy our horse farm and replace it with a horse farm in San Jose. Wow, they were uh, very, very interested. They, they, were, they, they were interested. and But uh, my wife came out for a couple of months and said, hey, this is cool, but I don't want to live here. Uh, so you do what you want. And I was like, well, that kind of decides it for me. Cause yeah, <laughs> that makes sense. Be where, where she was at. Yeah. So that situation's come up a couple of times. Uh, I've been involved in a, in several startups in the West coast. What I can say, cause it shows up in Google is uh, when Dell's Lake microsystems moved out to the West coast to San Jose, uh, when they relocated from Ottawa, Canada, uh, I was the, actually I was the very first employee there and I was the chief tech officer for about a year, year and a half. Mm -hmm. And it got to the point where they wanted to take things to the next level and say, okay, it's time for you to move out here. And I was like, no, I'm sorry. I just can't do this. Yeah. So it's uh, why we parted ways. I, I, I love visiting California. I love doing design work out there, but as long as I can live here, I don't mind going out for doing design reviews, but that's kind of where the. It seems like you've made it work anyways. Um, so. Yeah. So it's not too big of a deal that, that people will think that you actually don't realize that you do tech. Do you still, uh, in your everyday life, use a lot of tech that's not work-oriented, but maybe like, I don't know, the newest iPhone or or whatever, uh, Android? <laughs> uh, well, I, they do pretty much stick with iPhone, uh, okay. just a personal preference. There's there's no no political agenda there one way or the other. <laughs> I, I, I have done Android development in the past as well, but... Uh, Our entire family is iPhone, especially when the kids were in school. Cell phone coverage is almost non-existent up here, right. but you can find Wi-Fi from place to place. So the way to stay in touch with our kids, uh, iMessage works in Wi-Fi really well. But a lot of uh, before Wi-Fi calling came out, uh, SMS wasn't working unless you had a cell phone connection. Uh, that's kind of changed a bit. But uh, most of the tech stays right here in the office. I, I've been uh -huh. self-employed contractor at least half of my career. Uh, it keeps winding up where I'll be doing contracting for a company and they eventually bring me on for a few years. And I think the longest stint I've done is 10 years at one place as an employee, but I prefer to be self-employed. I learned way too late in the game that you can't do it out of your house and really walk away from work. And I think a lot of people are realizing this after the last year of the pandemic. I'm very fortunate. My garage office here is a thousand feet from our cabin okay. and the tech stays here. The cabin, yes, I've got Wi-Fi there and we stream Netflix and we, we don't have cable or satellite or anything. It's all all streamed over the internet back at the cabin. But uh, it is, it's a one bedroom cabin. It's 750 square feet. It's where we raised our boys. 
Wow. So pretty cozy, but uh, we're also in a considerable chunk of woods here. And It's a really interesting interface between very high tech and very low tech, but it, it seems to be the perfect balance. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, during the, the the state cross country ski trails come within 200 feet of our property. So especially when the kids were in school, I'd get them on the bus and there's one school bus for the entire County. So it starts at our driveway. It used to, both the, both my sons are now adults. I guess that's where the seniors and tech thing comes in again. Uh, time goes on, <laughs> but uh, they'd get on the bus at five in the morning and yeah. then I would just stay up here at the office, make myself a cup of coffee and get going. But I generally feel uh, pretty comfortable taking a break at three in the afternoon. And I, Pull out my dad's old uh, Norwegian skis and wax them up and go skiing oh, at three in the afternoon. Sounds amazing. I, yeah. I'm going to aim for this quality of life. <laughs> in the and I'm also in a, a destination for mountain biking up here. So right. uh, I do a lot of that, both recreationally and as pulling people off trails as a paramedic. Oh, so, yeah. Yeah. Because how else are you going to reach them? Yeah. Yep. Since you kind of were there at the beginning of the digital era Things have changed a lot over time, and you were there for a lot of it because you were working in all of this. So how was it to watch to watch this whole evolution of, of a type of technology uh, during your career? It's been pretty amazing. Um, again, there's always somebody doing something more sophisticated than you, and you can't know it all. Uh, sure. It's always been a situation of I learn things as I need it, and uh, uh, you kind of go from there. But it. In the late 70s, I was doing work for a distributor for a company called Ohio Scientific, mm. and they were the other personal computer company. There was this other upstart out there called Apple, and we <laughs> kind of consider ourselves competitors. <laughs> I think one of them did better than the other. But, uh, but Ohio Scientific came, it was, was pretty innovative for the time, but the computer back then, then was, was a bareboard computer with a QWERTY keyboard on it and no case. So mm-hmm. we've come a long ways. I did a lot of... Uh, consulting for businesses that were running computers back then it was cpm and mpm and uh, dos was just starting to come out and this is before the ibm pc mm-hmm. but uh, a lot of times especially when i was living out in there in the arizona area a company will want to add a printer to their computer and i would actually have to wire wrap a circuit board and write a driver <laughs> so they could plug their centronics compatible interface into their computer and do printouts so things have, before you really had to be able to cookbook things to get things to work yeah and the fact that things are plug and play no pun intended there um <laughs> these days uh yeah late 70s early 80s it wasn't unusual to go in and pull circuit boards out and plug them back in to get the oxide off the contacts and sometimes pull ic's out of their sockets and put them back in and that was just considered normal to keep a computer running. So the, the reliability and the ruggedness of the equipment today compared to where things were in the 70s, 80s is just amazing. It, nobody thinks twice about dropping an iPhone, you know, unless it happens yeah. to land on a rock and crack the screen. But you just assume it's going to continue working. Mm-hmm. That's what a big happened if you would drop one at. of those old Ohio Scientific computers? Um, it wouldn't work. <laughs> it would shatter that. into a million pieces. <laughs> You'd have to align the floppy disk drive just so it would even read the, the disks. <laughs> yeah, I guess people don't really think about how things are a lot more accessible now as well. You don't particularly have to be that great at tech to figure out how to run a PC. And it's much more affordable. Uh, the first That's hard drives it. that I was working with were uh, rack mount. And uh, Oki Data 80 megabyte hard drive was $10,000 back Oof. in the early 80s. 
Uh, and the very first hard drive I had for my Zenith data systems PC, <laughs> um, that was the IBM clone. I was living high in the hog with a 10 megabyte hard drive. <laughs> wow. What, how much stuff can you save on a 10 megabit? What are you even using that for, actually? Well, back then, there was a lot of space, but you weren't storing high graphic, you know, high definition graphics or anything else like that. You, I, you could write a lot of programs under a couple of oh, K yeah. code. So, again, things have changed. It's storage. I, I, most of my background is assembly code and uh, digital signal processing and, and a lot of C code. Uh, back, that's very efficient coding. Uh, yeah. These days, with graphic user interfaces and everything else, you can you could have you know a gigabyte in a program. And a lot of games out there that people are are playing, either on their iPads or or iPhones or their their desktop computers, mm-hmm. are many gigabytes in size. Yeah. So, and we don't even think twice about it anymore. No. Yeah. It's just an app, and it's fine. <laughs> yep. I, I think it's really important to to just see how these things are evolving and how you're also just staying at the forefront of it, because for some reason, some people just assume that it's it seems to me are like, no, it's not for my generation. So I don't need to think about it. But actually, you know, if you're even if you're there from the beginning, you can keep up with it. Do you- some of the retired people I know up here are extremely high tech. They mm-hmm. kind of get you can go either way, but uh, they've got. I wouldn't say time in their hands because some of the busiest people I know are retired. But yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, but if they want to make time for it, they're digging into stuff and then asking me questions it's like I don't know, I'm going to have to look it up in Google. And they're like, "What?" And I said, "Well, it's the uh, to me the Google is the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. It's it's the place to look everything up and figure out how things work." Uh, yeah. That's another thing that's changed considerably. You know, in the '80s, looking something up online was not a thing. So it was quite a it was quite a project to go out oh. there and try to research something. Yeah, how textbooks. do you figure out how to code if you do you have to go to the library? Yes, I did. Oh, spend yeah. a lot of time at the library. <laughs> okay, because now I complain when I have to spend a day figuring out why my code isn't working on Google, but uh, maybe I shouldn't complain so much. <laughs> my <laughs> first code was was stored on punched tape. Oh. And Hollerith uh, punch cards, but uh, our high tech ones were punch tape. They were reels of punch tape. And uh, we would write the code, punch it out, and it would be loaded into the processing system because it the the memory was uh, it had to be powered up. You lost power, you lost the program. So then you had to reload. Oh, it. okay. Yeah. And then we had these electric drills on our belts that would reload, respin the tape back up in the reel after we loaded the computer. <laughs> it's such it's so such a different change. system, yeah, from what we have today. It's so weird to think about this like physical memory as as these punch cards. Firmware was very expensive back uh, in the beginning, mm-hmm. and it was not easy to reprogram. Uh, the, the original PROMs were just that. They were fusible links. So once you burn the firmware in, it was that was it. Was and forever? if you wanted to change the firmware, you had to go in there and pull the IC out and put a new one in. Oh, okay. And then they came up with the UV erasable ones, mm-hmm. um, and you'd pull the, the chip out, put it under UV light for 15, 20 minutes, and reprogram it. But even then, it was a big deal to, to do a BIOS update or do a firmware update. Uh, yeah, it's not automatic download and restart uh, like we have now. Oh, it's interesting to see how much more work everything was back then, basically. Although I guess now it's it's a, just a different kind of work. It's definitely a different kind of work. Uh, when I was still active in the corporate level, I was one of the few guys that still had a... I always insisted in having a full workbench behind me. Mm-hmm. Most design these days is done by CAD. You, know, you model yeah. everything on the computer. 
But for me, there's, yeah, I do the modeling, I do everything else, but there's still no substitute for actually building it on the bench and trying it out in, in for my own personal preference. Yeah. I was going to ask if you had a preference for, for how it was done before, how it's done now, but I guess that answers that. And it's good for prototyping, but, uh, the scale of things today, uh, you can simulate it on a bench to a certain extent when you build something, but everything is so small, uh, you can't simulate sure. that on a bench. Yeah, but you could start out, I guess, on the bench and then get your precision higher in, in CAD or yep. whatever. Hmm. What is your favorite piece of tech that you've either worked on or own or just seen? Boy, that's tough. Um, <laughs> my favorite product I ever worked on was was the Zensor. That's um, still something that's in progress, but uh, being able to take something that I was writing Bluetooth stacks and GPS software, and then going out. And part of my job was to go out and mount it to it a, a mountain bike and go out there with the blessing of the company and just beat <laughs> on it. Uh, it was a blast. Uh, we actually did a, uh, the company that I, I did that design for, and they, it was another one of those situations where I contracted with them for years and they brought me on as a, uh, mm-hmm. a salary engineer after a while, but they got started out doing this, uh, they were doing uh, red camera and HD videos for Red Bull to uh, qualify events that they were competitions that they were having. Gotcha. And Red Bull wanted more data, more precise data. And this company got into doing uh, sensors so they could actually digitally record what was going on in each competition, see how uh-huh. high that surfboard jumped in the air or that kiteboard. And uh, I got to get involved with that uh, shortly after they got into that technology and, uh, I finished up the software, finished up the hardware design, actually got in production with the company, actually got to go out with Red Bull to test this stuff. And they loved it because I was not only there to test the hardware, but they had a paramedic on scene. Oh, yeah, so exactly. So they asked me to bring, yeah, they asked me to bring my, my uh, medic gear with me when I was uh, on these <laughs> test sites. So I've gotten to uh, – there's one in particular where they, were, they brought in uh, world-class uh, kiteboarders from around the world in November on Lake Superior. Oof. And some of these guys no, have never seen you. snow before. So oh, they're out boy. there kiteboarding in the snow in um, 30 some odd degree Lake Superior waters. Yeah, it was, actually, it was a fun there. time. It was a fun time. <laughs> it's crazy where these origins for this tech comes from. In this case, just we want to see how high this guy's jumping. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Oh, that's good to hear. It seems like you've had just an all over the place career and it, it's nice to for you to tell us about it and be able to reflect back on it and see how things have changed and how you're still doing pretty amazing stuff, actually. So I just feel very lucky. You know, a good part of what's interesting is life in life is just paying attention to what's going on around you. And there, there's nothing special about me. I just happen to be in the right place at the right time and really lucky to enjoy things. Uh, I've always been an engineer that could talk to people, as you probably gathered from this interview. <laughs> and so I, I would talk to the customers and, my clients would send me to the different approval agencies to walk it through. So if it's something failed in approvals, I could actually make the hardware software changes on the spot. Mm, and that, that moved from doing approvals in the U S to doing a lot of work in the UK, working with British approvals board. Uh, I was working in Helsinki up until the week before my wife and I got married. <laughs> really all over and, the place. <laughs> and I love culture and I love architecture. So I feel very lucky to be able to travel and talk to people. Well, speaking of talking to people, you did mention you have a podcast. So if you want to plug it, uh, here's your chance. <laughs> it's called The Podcast That Shall Not Be Named. How, it, how that name came up is just a long story, but it's The Podcast That Shall Not Be Named. And uh, you'll be able to find that in an RSS feed uh, at a 
podcast aggregator near you. <laughs> and I promise to have an episode up in the next 24 hours. Otherwise, Tom will come find me and say, why did you do it? So, <laughs> Perfect. Uh, I'll put some pressure on myself there. But uh, I'll start plugging other versions of my podcast that I've done over the years. I've probably got it close to a thousand episodes out there between the, the various different podcasts I've done. But again, 15 years. Well, darn, uh, that is very, very productive that's, man. <laughs> that's that's another old guard I belong to. Uh, podcasting. I, the podcasting group, mostly with the Canadian podcasters, uh, Toronto, mm -hmm. Hamilton, Montreal. Um, but uh, that's something else that I do to keep myself sane. Well, great. I hope people go check it out. And thanks so much for coming to give us a little chat. And maybe we'll have you on more for a longer form because you have a lot of stories to tell, I'm sure. I really appreciate your time. Come back next week for the next edition of Seniors in Tech. Michael is working on the podcast that shall not be named. So go check out his work there. You can find me hosting my own senior interview podcast over at Stories Your Granny Never Told. Next week, we talk to Sandra Foster, who learned to use computers to make her job easier as a school teacher. Music